Hub and Spoke Audio Collective. When I was walking by the door, because I was just going to walk right by it, and all of a sudden I turned and saw this, and I had to come in and check it all out. I walked in and looked up, and my jaw just dropped. This is one huge sculpture. Um, I see like a ginormous, like, goddess. It's just uh, imposing. I don't want to say in your face. It, I guess it, it's a woman and it's power and it, I had to see it. <laughs> She's like maybe 20 feet tall. It amazes me that this is a woman too. I don't know why, but I sort of expect men to be made into huge sculptures. I love the way her hair flows too. It's absolutely beautiful. It's very luscious, the locks of hair. Um, it almost looks like serpents. Her hands are broken off, um, and I really, really wonder what her hand gestures are, because one of them would have been raised to like her neck or her face. And the face uh, has a rather big nose for modern standards, and big eyes, and uh, luscious lips, I guess. She's got really powerful legs, which I guess you would if you were a goddess. Um, one knee is slightly bent and, you know, that sort of classic casual posture. She's posed so naturally and so beautifully, and there's such an elegant nature to the way she's standing. I don't know whether she's, like, casually watching people die off in the distance or um, walking somewhere or what. She looks, like, smart and also, like, yeah, yeah, like, more, like... Probably. My first reaction is how amazing it is that someone could even carve something like this out of such a big block of marble. Um, I mean, it takes an enormous amount of time and dedication, and I think it's just amazing that one even has the patience to do that. It's very well preserved. Um, you can see the hiton coming down, and normally those I'm from Greece, and therefore it's kind of um, unfortunate that I get to see this uh, here. <laughs> I wish I could actually see it in Greece um, because we have a lot of uh, much smaller broken ones of these. Like when you go to Greek museums, you do not get something well preserved like this. I was looking at it from the artist's point of view, actually, thinking to get that kind of um, perspective and, and dimensions correctly with a human being, it, it, it's, it's remarkable to me, like how, where would they would stand, who would be modeling it. Um, and what's really fascinating to me is the drape of the fabric. I'm really amazed by the ripple effects of her dress and how it like, how it cascades down. Um, she's draped with drapey clothes, you know, like, oh, I just threw this on this morning. It feels casual, almost, just the way it's wrapped around her. Um, it almost reminds me of just like putting a bath towel on. Um. It just floors me, you know, what kind of tools they would have to use to get those little teeny creases and folds just right for the sculptor to actually sculpt something that looks see-through and it's all stone. It's remarkable. It's truly remarkable, right? This is The Lonely Palette, the podcast that returns art history to the masses, one object at a time. I'm Tamara Vishai. Episode 57, Juno, 
a colossal Roman statue from the late first century BCE. When I was in fifth grade, we had a unit on Greek myths. And you know the way you remember some things from childhood so clearly that you close your eyes and you're just there? For some reason, that's Greek mythology to me. We were all given a book, like a real grown-up chapter book without pictures, on the gods and goddesses of Olympus. And it quickly became my favorite book. I read it so many times, I memorized it. It's now missing a cover and the pages are all squiggly from dropping it in the bath. I just, I couldn't get enough of these jokers. These gods and goddesses, they were so deliciously awful to each other and in ways that seemed so much more human than the omniscient, know-it-all Jewish god that I grew up with. Their insecurities and sex drives and jealousy all felt so relatable. They helped explain grown-ups and Melrose Place to me. And no one was more jealous than Hera, the wife of Zeus, who I always thought was done a little dirty. All the other goddesses were given such iconic identities, Athena, the goddess of wisdom, Aphrodite, the goddess of love, and so on. But Hera was Zeus's wife, the goddess of wife. It seemed like her entire existence was to resent her cheating husband, a kind of helladic Carmela Soprano. I know technically she's the queen of the gods, but I guess that always felt more like a title than a job. At the end of the day, she's always attached to Zeus. She's the goddess of marriage, which again, considering that she's always being cheated on, felt kind of weak. There was never any Hera without Zeus. She was always in his shadow. She's never allowed to contain her own multitudes, to just be her. Until now. Now she's the subject of our episode. She's completely undeniable, all 13 feet and six and a half tons of her before you even count the pedestal. In fact, she's the largest classical sculpture in North America this colossal Roman statue of Juno. And Juno is, of course, the Roman name for Hera. It's the same goddess, the same cheating husband, the same story. But when you stand in front of her in the newly installed airy gallery at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, it doesn't feel like the same story. Because there's no Zeus anywhere. She's having her moment. And there is nothing about this sculpture that feels weak. No shadow it could possibly fit in. So her story. When it comes to ancient art, and particularly the freestanding sculpture that most people would recognize, there are a lot of stories to explore, all nesting inside one another like a weathered marble turducken. We know who she is because we know the stories, that is, the myths. But then there's the story of her moment of creation, that is, her context, what inspired Roman artisans in the first century BCE to pick up their chisels and carve this woman and her drapery and her brooches and her sandals out of Carrera marble and most likely put her in a temple to worship her. And then there's the story of the sculpture ever since. You don't survive thousands of years without seeing some stuff, without needing some work done. 
and without that restoration having stories of its own. I mean, remember in episodes 19 on the Guanyin Bodhisattva, and especially episode 36 on the Ece Homo Monkey Christ fiasco, that the decision to restore an antique object is incredibly loaded and probably says more about the cultural moment of its restoration than the moment that it's being restored to. But I digress. All of these stories, the myths, the history, and the provenance and restoration, are present in this monumental sculpture. So let's dive into them. First into the object itself, and then into its journey through time and space to bring us to our moment today, looking up at Juno, who is finally ruling the court that's always been withheld from her. So first up, the history. You really can't tell the story of Roman statues without understanding that they're wholly indebted to the story of Greek statues. And you can't really talk about Greek statues without explaining the evolution of Greek art from the 9th to the 1st century BCE. So without further ado, here is an insultingly brief history of freestanding Greco-Roman sculpture that would make any ancient Greek art historian shatter his teacup with indignance. But here we go. When you think about Greek sculpture, you probably have some really famous figures in your head. Ones that you never realized you would recognize forever, either by sight or by name or by its cultural clout. Figures like the discus thrower that always gets trotted out at the Olympics, or the famously armless Venus de Milo, or the writhing and snake-bitten Laocoon and his sons. These figures are all part of a long trajectory over hundreds of years of artisans learning to depict the human body. And from there, learning how to infuse those bodies with subtlety and emotional depth. It's actually pretty powerful to watch these sculptures evolve, almost like that old evolution diagram of monkey becoming man. We are watching Western art become itself in real time. And ancient Greek art defined itself early on by this evolution in strong contrast with, for example, ancient Egyptian art, which was based on the strong desire for continuity and permanence, and therefore stayed relatively consistent over 3,000 years. Greek art, which developed during a comparatively much shorter time, only about 800 years, is nothing if not variable. You could hold up a geometric period pot from around 750 BCE against a Hellenistic sculpture from 200 BCE and have no idea that they were from the same culture. But what did remain consistent throughout was a deep sense of history, of storytelling, and an indispensable religious imagination, which led to an abundance of sacred sites of sanctuaries and temples across the region that were dedicated to the gods. Each site, each structure, was an independent space that was integrated into its natural surroundings, a unique entity that was part of a larger spiritual and geographic community. And the increasing artistic desire to depict the human body, itself so individual and so communal, undoubtedly reflected this. So let's fast forward through the really early stuff, which is mostly lots of pots. And again, ancient art historians, my sincere apologies, don't at me. To arrive at the Archaic period from around 600 to 480 BCE. 
which is famous first and foremost for the development of those column orders that you had to memorize in middle school. Say it with me. Doric, the most solid and stolid. Ionic, which with its flat top swirls at the top is the most iconic. That's how I remembered it. And Corinthian, with its carved rosettes and acanthus leaves and stuff, which is the most elegant and the most decorated. Clearly, this is when temple architecture really starts to take off. And with it, the sculpture is both carved into the temple's facades in elaborate friezes, and for our purposes, the venerable freestanding sculptures of the gods inside. The Archaic period saw the flourishing of city-states, both on the mainland and the Aegean islands, and pushed its capital, Athens, to the forefront both commercially and artistically. Artistic commissions thrived, and even those pots that we totally neglected started to be signed by individual artists. It was kind of like the Renaissance before the Italian Renaissance, if you really want to twist your brain up. The first freestanding sculptures from these periods weren't actually mythological gods, but their immortal deity attendants, called a core if depicting a female, or a koros if it's male. These figures acted as grave markers and lined the entries of temples and are notable for their straight-backed stiffness, almost like they were modeled from an Egyptian hieroglyphic. They have clenched fists at their sides, one foot forward, and often a gentle closed-mouthed smile. But even the koroi started to evolve and soften as the years passed, less imprisoned by artistic convention and more individualized so that by the time we reach the Classical period in 480 BC, it's not so shocking to see the sculptures that we first recognize as classically Greek, the foundation for the Italian Renaissance in the 15th century, which is, of course, the revival of antiquity, which is, of course, this. Classical Greek art, a period of really only 160 years, is characterized by rationalism, humanism, and idealism, by the notion that man is the measure of all things, that only the necessary need be captured, nothing in excess, and that mathematical proportionality can lead to the rendering of an authentic human body. The frozen one foot forward of a Koros from 530 BCE evolves into a smooth, more lifelike and proportional Critian boy from 480 BCE and from there into a perfectly weight-bearing contrapposto in the spear-bearer from 450 BCE. The archaic smile disappears into the subtle planes of the human face. Musculature slowly appears beneath the skin. And when you see these three figures side by side, Koros, Critian boy, spear-bearer, and you consider that this aesthetic evolution happened in only 80 years, Honestly, the human progress of it all just takes your breath away. And so, 450 BCE and our spear bearer mark the beginning of the High Classical period, around 450 to 400 BCE, and famous for everything that you recognize out of ancient Greece. The Acropolis, the Parthenon, Athens v Sparta, the heyday of the ancient Olympic Games, the discus thrower and his stunning naturalism, carved by artists who now understood how to capture not just the body itself, but how it moves, its hard muscles and soft flesh and gently turned out foot, and the tension of the pregnant moment before the action. 
And it's this tension, this emotional energy, where the body isn't just a thing in a vacuum, but a person responding to the world, that takes us into the late classical period, from around 400 to 323 BCE, the period of Plato and Aristotle and the School of Athens, and then into the Hellenistic period, which began in 323 BCE with the death of Alexander the Great. Alexander's death left a vast conquered empire with virtually no leadership or administrative structure, ultimately leaving it to be divided into kingdoms amongst his generals, and ushering in a period of pluralism rather than cohesion until its ultimate conquest by the Romans in 31 BCE. But the art of the Hellenistic period is remarkably consistent in that it aimed to reject its predecessors, to be anti-classical, and far more individualized, humanistic, and, like human beings, highly emotional and dramatic. Gone are the aloof expressions, the charged moment before the action. Consider the fact that while the discus thrower's body is taut and ready, his face is as subdued as if he was standing in line at the post office. The Hellenistic period replaced this aloofness with richly flapping drapery, like we see in the soaring wind-whipped Nike of Samothrace, or in the priest Laocoon's face of utter agony as he and his sons are beset by venomous snakes. We've talked before about how so often in art history the pendulum swings between intellectualism and emotionalism, between the moment of anticipation and the moment of action, between the head and the gut. We see this as the Renaissance moves into the Baroque, as Cubism moves towards Expressionism, as Abstract Expressionism moves towards Minimalism. But what we see here, in the classical to the Hellenistic, really is the OG. When we start admiring the muscles and proportion of a classical athlete to empathizing with a suffering father. Okay, end of breakneck speed preamble through ancient Greece and on to Rome, and ultimately to Juno. The handoff of Greek culture, the conquered, to Roman culture, the conqueror, isn't nearly as straightforward as you'd imagine. I mean, you'd think that Roman art would swallow Greek art whole. But remember, Roman art was itself just getting off the ground, and Greece exerted an enormously oversized influence on this nascent culture. Greek art, with its humanism and elegance, was, if I haven't already convinced you, pretty powerful and beautiful stuff. So much so that the Roman poet Horace famously wrote that, quote, Greece, the captive, took her savage victor captive. In fact, the smooth, snow-white marble Greek sculptures we're so familiar with are actually replications, Roman copies of the original Greek bronze sculptures. Yes, indeed, any sculpture you've ever been taught as ancient Greek isn't actually from that period at all, but a Roman copy after the fact. There are a few reasons for this. First, logistical. After all, the original bronze was a highly valuable material for weaponry and any number of other uses, so best to melt them down and use them more practically. But the second is more artistic and cultural. The early Roman craze for Greek art was all but unquenchable. Everyone wanted a piece. 
So the sculptures were molded into plaster casts and then into hollow marble that could barely support the weight, hence the little supports and carved tree stumps that you tend to see around the feet, and then replicated endlessly, often with their heads swapped in and out. But about these heads? Roman artists didn't just pick up the mantle of Greek art, they continued its evolution. The emotional realism that was so characteristic of Hellenistic sculpture continued to evolve into the Roman Republic and the early Roman Empire by way of these swapped out heads, these busts, because they were so focused on the human face. Where Greek sculpture perfected the human body, Roman sculpture actually let it begin to age. An interest in meticulous realism, called verism, captured those big noses and tiny eyes and wrinkles and warts. Verism allowed for a lack of physical perfection in favor of authenticity and individuality. And verism also led to an interesting development in this highly politically charged period, propaganda. After all, if something seems accurate, even down to the wart, then you're less inclined to question its ability to manipulate you. And so the specificity of a portrait generated its recognizability. A coin with the image of Julius Caesar became unmistakable. A diadem, or tiara, atop a head of curls, was unequivocally the goddess Juno. So we're finally at our Juno, who was most likely carved during the early Roman Empire, under the reign of Augustus and during the Pax Romana, a legacy of over 200 years from 27 BCE to 180 CE, of stability, economic prosperity, and internal peace. A time of building at an unprecedented scale and complexity. A time of incredible engineering and great beauty. She was carved from a massive piece of Carrera marble, named for the many quarries near the north-central Italian city of Carrera, which would have tied in nicely with Augustus's desire to decorate his city with all the white marble he could unearth. The Roman historian Suetonius wrote that, quote, Augustus found Rome a city built in brick and left it one of marble. And like Napoleon III's housemanization of Paris, which we discussed in episode 7, you can imagine how brilliantly bright the city must have become, how elegant, and especially how opulent. And we see this in Juno herself, this desire for richness. We can, of course, only understand the gods in terms of our own human instincts and desires. And so Juno's queenliness is indicated by the exact stuff that we would find valuable. The pressed cloth of her voluminous drapery, the buttons on her sleeves, the brooches fastening the cloak at her shoulders, even her sandals, all were universally recognizable indications of wealth. But about that universally recognizable thing, there's a somewhat sizable snag in our story. And I probably shouldn't have waited this long to mention it, but the fact is that after all this buildup, we can't actually be sure that this was originally meant to be Juno, and not simply some wealthy female figure, or a muse maybe, or part of a larger group of colossal sculptures. Because, as I said, heads got swapped, and this head, 
as I said, unmistakably Juno because of the diadem, wasn't the original. Those broken off hands could have been holding a musical instrument or a scroll or any other number of objects that would have been as symbolic as this diadem, but for someone else. It's the head that makes her Juno, and this head came later. So apologies for the bait and switch, but it does bring us to the final leg of our story, the sculpture ever since. There is a lot to her journey from then to now. Enough of a story that the MFA published a whole book about it, and you can imagine that the research required to piece this together is Herculean, no ancient Greco-Roman pun intended. So we're just going to touch here on the greatest hits. While her early provenance from antiquity to the Baroque is a collection of muddy best guesses, she first appeared with confidence in 1633 in the inventory of an Italian cardinal, Cardinal Ludovisi, known for his family's prized collection of antiquities. She would have presided over an avenue of cypress trees, and then was put into a palace, and in the 1730s was sold to a pope, and then ceded to the French at the turn of the 19th century, and then returned to Rome 20 years later. And in her life, she would have been visited by Goethe, by Stendhal, by Nathaniel Hawthorne and Henry James, and most notably by the German art historian Johann Winkelmann, who essentially told the Ludovices the value of what they had on their hands, and with a tone that you can almost hear, that her upper lip had been very poorly restored. By the end of the 19th century, most of the Ludovisi collection had been purchased by the Italian government. The Ludovisi Gardens became a construction site. And Charles F. Sprague, a U.S. congressman and avid art collector in Brookline, Massachusetts, who was hard at work creating an Italian-themed garden, got a tip from his landscape architect that he had an in on a quote-unquote big statue, a quote-unquote stunner, whose availability was, quote, a chance as hardly ever occurs. In 1904, after several complicated years that included bureaucratic red tape, issues with the Italian government, and Sprague's death, 12 oxen pulled the statue down the driveway of now Mrs. Sprague's house, and Juno found her new home in that garden for the next century. She was then bequeathed to the Museum of Fine Arts and underwent an extraordinary restoration beginning in 2012, which included the removal of her 400-pound head and the fixing of her somewhat disfigured face. Apparently, a guest of the Sprague's tried to climb the statue, causing the head to tumble down and the nose to break off, and honestly, after a few wine spritzers, who among us? And the general cleaning and restoring after 500 years of garden life and exposure to the elements on top of 1,500 earlier years of life on this planet, to arrive at this moment, in this gallery, with birdsong piped in to evoke the outside, the sun and the mist and the wind, where so much of her life had been spent. So these are the stories that brought her to this point. And now it's time for one more, the story that we tell ourselves. What does Juno mean to us? Why have we put so much energy into tracing her origins, into knowing where she's been and what she's seen? And what does that say about our desire to understand our own origins? Even with all of this incredible research, there's quite a bit that we take on faith. 
After all, so much of restoration and the study of antiquities in general amounts to extremely educated guesses. We think this is how best to restore her. We think this is Juno. And if we decide that she is, then we think that this is the most accurate retelling of her historical story, so that she, queen that she is, can best tell her own stories to explain Greek mythology to us today. But we don't have the proof like we have in modern art. We don't have Duchamp or Picasso taking a pen to paper to write manifestos and explain exactly why their art looks the way it does, why it met its historical moment the way that it did. Instead, we have history, which is to say we have lots and lots of stories. And from them, we craft and carve. We turn the marble into a larger picture of its context and that picture into our understanding of the vast, endless expanse of world before we came along. And like I said, we have faith. Faith that humans then are like humans today. That all we've ever wanted was a world that we could put into terms that we understand. That's why Greek artists carved sculptures that looked like themselves. That's why before them, people told stories of gods and goddesses in their petty human images. And it's why I, in fifth grade, used Greek myths to understand my world, even Melrose Place. So think about all that when you stand in front of this sculpture, this stunner, at the culmination point of all her stories and ours. Think about us, the mortals on the ground, how much we know and how little we know, and how it's the combination of both and the combination of proof and faith that pretty much makes up the entirety of human experience. Think about how we made her to worship her, the captive taking us captive, casting her own magnificent shadow and presiding over us all. Special thanks to roving correspondent Debbie Bleacher, Ashley Blymas and Olga Kavan, and the intrepid museum goers at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. The Lonely Palette is all over social media, so you can follow us on Twitter at Lonely Palette and on Instagram at The Lonely Palette. And be sure to go to our website, thelonelypalette.com, for all the images from this episode and especially enjoy that sculpture evolution. But you'll also find information on virtual museum tours that you can book for your company. You can peruse our store for mugs, stickers, baby onesies, fridge magnets, everything you need to show the world you're an art history nerd. And you can subscribe to our newsletter. And you can support the show by becoming a patron, where you pay per episode. And starting soon, I promise, really this time, patrons will have access to bonus content, including interviews with critics, artists, curators, and fellow art-focused podcasters. 
More to come on that soon, so become a patron and stay tuned. The Lonely Palette is a proud founding member of Hub & Spoke, a collective of idea-driven, mind-expanding podcasts. And you should check out the most recent series of shows from the world's first podcast, Radio Open Source with Christopher Lydon, which has been shooting out the lights on their coverage of Ukraine, from its arts and culture, to the possibilities for diplomacy, to the threat of nuclear war, all approached with Chris's trademark curiosity and nuance. Listen at radioopensource.org, hubspokeaudio.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Et de l'étoile à la concorde, un orchestre a mis le corps, tous les oiseaux du point du jour chantent l'amour.